Rustwell Capital is an elite Ohio-based private equity firm with a specialization in long-term, high-cash-flow multifamily investments. If you're looking for long-term recurring income, you should check out Rustwell Capital. From their approach to managing risk, to the locations they invest, the product quality they provide, this firm is serious about what they do, which is why the owners of Rustwell Capital invest their money in every deal they take on. Review their case studies by visiting rustbeltcapital.com. That's rustbeltcapital.com. Once again, rustbeltcapital.com or email investor at rustbeltcapital.com. Our rents are less than 30% of the average area median income. Hello, left fielders. Welcome to Passive Investing from Left Field Podcast. Our community is focused on networking and education to help people invest passively and think differently. Let's go. Hey guys, this is Matt Faircloth here from the DeRosa Group, and you are listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. I'm really excited today to have Rich Delgado with us. He is the managing director of DLP Capital, a private real estate investment and financial services firm focused on investing in, developing, and financing attainable housing for America's workforces including multifamily and single-family fa- single rental communities, along with investments in outdoor hospitality and RV campgrounds. Rich, welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. Awesome, Jim. Thank you for having me. A uh, pleasure to be here with you today. Well, we're glad you're here. And we want to start out, as we always do, kind of with your journey. How did you get into real estate? How did you find DLP? If you can just kind of tell us how you got here, we'd, we'd love to start with that. Yeah, absolutely. Interestingly enough, you know, I was not... Uh, into real estate, um, neither as an operator, not even passively, uh, before, uh, coming across DLP. So my background is 30 years of structured finance, started at Deloitte and Touche in New York City, and then worked for a company in South Florida named Aquin Financial for nearly 20 years, uh, managed all the capital markets work, grew their business to over 600 billion in mortgage servicing rights, made them the third largest mortgage servicer in the U.S. behind J.P. Morgan and Wells. And then I went to their biggest competitors five years after that uh, in Texas, Nation Star Mortgage, also known as Mr. Cooper, um, and did the same type of work there, helped them grow their platform to over $600 billion, making them then the third largest mortgage servicer in the U.S. Um, and, you know, I was commuting back and forth and I decided – uh, living in Florida and commuting to Texas every week was tough. So I decided my wife and I were going to just take some time off. And um, I had a good friend. She was a uh, CEO in one of the divisions over at NationStar. Uh, before going to NationStar, she was a CEO for Genesis Capital. And at Genesis Capital, she sold that platform over to Goldman Sachs uh, before going to NationStar. And during her uh, venture at Genesis, she used to uh, lend to Don um, and DLP as a lender from Genesis, but then she was also an investor in the DLP funds. So she connected Don and I um, more from just an interest standpoint and thought I'd be great for the funds and everything else. And in meeting Don, loved the story, loved the impact that he was looking to make uh, and really saw the value. I couldn't believe you know, how wonderful the funds were performing for so many years. And I said, you know, it's just too good to be true, which I hear every day. Um, but the reality is with a lot of diligence and then getting into, you know, what Don built in terms of the elite membership and how he really lends and works with other real estate operators to help them build their business and uses those tools to create a great foundation really made me um, not only um 
want to work with him um, in a capacity, but also invest. So I'm an investor pretty much across all our funds. Excellent. Well, thank you for that. And then why don't we just go right into it? T- tell us a little bit about DLP and what they do and, and how they came to be, if you would. Certainly. So again, in short, you know, we are a real estate operator first and foremost. We buy real estate. We develop real estate uh, all in the workforce affordable housing space. So our mission is really to build thriving communities. Uh, and what I mean by that is, right, we look at all aspects of the community, not just, you know, the NOI and everything that goes into really making a good real estate investment, but also trying to make it a good place for our residents to, to live. We really try to get them to build community within those residences, be there for eight years, right? That's our goal is to have residents staying there. So we don't do one year leases. We do two year leases and things like that. So we do a lot of different things to really make it uh, uh, really a thriving community. But we build, we buy multifamily workforce housing. So ground up construction, buy existing quality, the value add strategy. And then we lend to other real estate operators to do the exact same thing, which is again, workforce housing, um, and that's both on the multifamily and single family side. We lend and we do everything from acquisition and development financing, land banking. We do uh, vertical construction. Uh, we lend on multifamily, single family, manufactured housing, RV. So we uh, don't lend on anything we don't do ourselves. So we have to first do it. And then once we've done it and perfected it, that's when we'll lend on those asset classes. Excellent. So you have a number of funds and, and you know, in, in re- doing a little research, you call it an impact fund and an impact company. Now, can you explain exactly what that means? Certainly. Yeah. And, th- and that it really goes back to kind of you take uh, Don's roots um, starting off. You know, he started the company back in 2006. So 18 years ago, right out of college. Um, started really through the realty side and going into 08, you could imagine, you know, that was a tough period. So he started buying more properties and he was selling, right? He had a model that he would uh, sell your home within 68 days or he would buy it. And since then, by the way, he's lowered that to 34 days. Um, but that being said, um, he bought a lot of homes, um, built a really large single family portfolio through 2012. And then really at that time decided, well, what can I do to, you know, really grow this business and continue to accelerate it. And that's when he expanded into multifamily, came down to the Jacksonville areas where we're headquartered in St. Augustine, started buying multifamily in Jacksonville, and then started to lend to other real estate operators. And that really started to propel the company. But what he realized was, you know, he was very successful at doing all of those things. He wanted to be more than successful. He wanted to go from success to significance. And he wanted to do that, not just for himself, but for other real estate operators. And that's really where the focus on workforce affordable housing came from. Really trying to not just, you know, create, you know, good returns for our investors, but do well in the process, which is what we do. And talk about workforce housing and affordable housing. How is that different? I think. You know, we hear a lot about it, but I don't know that we actually dig into what exactly does it mean. I mean. There's a ton of multifamily operators out there. There's a select few that say that they're doing affordable housing, workforce housing. So what is that subset of multifamily 
And how does it compare to, say, the standard multifamily that we might see as, as LP investors, you know, deals come across our desk? Excellent. I love that question all the time um, because it is a differentiating factor. Um, so, again, when you think about work, first, let's start with affordable housing. We're talking affordable with a lower case A. Um, we're not talking about affordable housing in the context of LIDAC or government-sponsored um, rents. All of our, um, well, I'll say 99.9% of our renters pay their own rent, right? It's, these are for the working class. We're talking about nurses, teachers, police officers, uh, firemen, right? Folks that can't afford to live in the same communities where they work. And so what we want to do is be able to build housing that is not only affordable today, but will remain affordable. Um, and that really is going into markets that have growing populations. Um, typically, it's going to be a tier two, tier three type market. Typically, you know, we're going to be looking at class B 2000 plus type of units if it's an existing but quite honestly, the better side of what I think we're doing today is really building brand new workforce housing in those same communities. So we focus on the Southeast, um, kind of think of Carolinas all the way out to uh, Central Florida and then out to Texas, um, the Sun Belt, right? That's really our market, Southeast and Sun Belt. But again, the way we define affordability, Jim, is our rents are less than 30% of the average area median income. So to give you an example, most markets, the rents are actually over 50%, right? And think about that. How do folks actually have enough money for disposable income, right? For just basics, food, you know, education, uh, just uh, medical and everything else, right? If they're spending more than 50% of their paycheck on rent, it's a big problem in the US. And that's why we're trying to do something about it. How do you like? I, I understand how you buy a two thousand, you know, or a nineteen nineties or whatever of property and upgrade it, and then it's workforce housing or affordable, right? How do you do ground up construction when you know when you're building from ground up and still make it affordable? That seems like that's the big challenge, right? That's the the challenge the United States has is how do we create more affordable housing? We can't just take the old stuff and shine it up and make it better. We need to build new stuff. So how are you doing that and still making it affordable while also providing a return to your investors? Yeah, no, great. Uh, great question. So first, we'll start with the fact that it, um, we are basis buyers, right? So it doesn't matter whether it's an existing property, right? Like we're looking to buy. So when we buy a property, we have to be able to make money on that property if we're going to sell it tomorrow, right? Like we're not going in and betting on the come, right? We're saying we're going to buy this at the right basis. And that's fundamental. Number one, that has served us extremely well, has you know helped us to make double digit returns for the last decade for our investors in all our funds. Um, so that principle applies to buying land. And that's really difficult, right? We see a lot of land from folks wanting us to lend to them, right, on land. And we do lend on it. But again, for us, before we lend on it, we have to know that if we had to take that property over, we'd be happy owning it and being able to build profitably on it, which is why, you know, again, it's difficult because you have to buy it at the right price. So it starts with the land basis and buying the land at a good price. If you get the land at a good price, then you have a lot of options, right, in terms of different types of structures, materials. Um, for us, we've really tried to, um, what I'll say, uniform uh, and standardize our buildings. Um, so again, we look at and we have these tiny cottages that we're building. 
and communities that we're building that are together so that we have a floor plan that is actually very profitable for us to build, but also very useful and very uh, impactful for our uh, our renters and for our uh, residents. That, that, that's great. So the um, talk about the environmental stewardship, because that's part of this as well, right? You You guys do good by providing workforce housing. That's what we need. But while you're doing that, you also are caring for the environment as, as part of your platform. So can you uh, speak to that? Yeah, a little bit. Um, you know, again, uh, for the most part, we really try to use um, really safe, uh, environmental friendly products where it comes into installation of and construction of our buildings or even renovations of new buildings, right? In terms of water efficiency, um, uh, energy efficiency, all of the different things we're looking at. So again, while the environment is a big impact, really, to be honest with you, Jim, it's the social impact, right? Um, because folks don't realize how bad um, the affordability crisis truly is. And that has sort of a lingering effect on it, right? The happiness crisis, the jobs crisis it creates, it's just, just a rippling effect. And so if you can help solve one piece of that puzzle, the social aspect and the social um, responsibility side of it that creates those, you know, graces that extend out to those other crises is uh, immense. And what do you do for the community then? Like what, what, what are some examples of things that happen in, in, you know, a DLP community that you built either ground up or, or redid as compared to, you know, the standard apartment complex? Are you doing different things in there for the community members that live there? Absolutely. I mean, aside from just call it amenities, right? Um, in terms of just adding amenities, we try to uh, really create a lot of enrichment programs. So we don't hire uh, property managers, for instance, right? We hire enrichment uh, directors. Um, they're really going to go in there and enrich the lives of the residents. Um, and that includes um, bringing in faith-based um, Bible studies, uh, having after-school tutoring, just doing a lot of different things that promote a really uh, growing and thriving community. And these programs are just included for residents that, that live there. There's no extra charge for this or it's just included? Nope. That's part of our rent basis. And again, uh, you know, we try to maintain rents, like I said, under the 30% threshold. Um, we're kind of in that low to mid twenties is where our portfolio stands today. So all very affordable rents in all of our markets. And you've, um, you do both equity and, and debt, as you said, for the, for the opportunities for investment. So can you talk about the difference between equity investing and debt investing from the perspective of a limited partner? Certainly, certainly. So we offer four different funds at DLP. Um, we have two equity funds, which are our DLP housing fund. That's our value add strategy and our building communities fund. That is for our ground up construction. Um, so both of those are what we consider equity funds. Um, as you go in, you're really investing in the real estate. Now you're investing in the fund. So you own a part of the fund. You don't own any of the individual real estate, which is different from a syndication, right? In a syndication, you are taking that individual risk. If that one property does well or doesn't do well, Whereas in the fund, right, you have diversification, geographic distribution. So for instance, in our housing fund, we have 62 different properties. If one of them was to go bad, you're going to barely feel that in the overall returns of the fund, 
right? So you have that protection. Um, so those are the equity funds. You have actual uh, direct, we're directly uh, owning real estate through those funds. Um, we do have the housing fund is super tax efficient, passes through depreciation to investors. So it really has a lot of good uh, benefits, super tax efficient. Um, and all of our funds, I should say, Jim, are open-ended, which means you can enter these strategies and you could be with us for 10, 20 years. They don't have a maturity where, you know, you're forced to take back your money or to take back your returns. And that's a big component of uh, mitigating risk as well. And then you have the credit side. So we have two funds on the credit side, which is where we lend to other real estate operators to do the same thing we do. Uh, the DLP lending fund is our longest standing fund. It's been out since 2014. So 10 years now, it has never had a monthly annualized return less than 10% ever. Um, so great returns to investors, great performance, never had a loss to investors in any of our funds. That fund specifically is all first lien assets. So that's a good protection for folks wanting first lien exposure. That gives it to them. Our preferred credit fund um, is the one that uh, returns the highest preferred return to investors. And we'll talk a little bit about that because all of our funds offer a preferred return, which gets paid to investors before we earn a management fee. And that's an important aspect of how we've structured our funds. But the preferred credit fund has the highest. It pays a 9% preferred return before we earn anything on that fund. Targets 10 to 11% and has been hitting those returns since its inception back in uh, 2022. And then uh, that fund does uh, not only first lien loans, but second lien loans, MES debt, PREF equity. So it gives the investors a little bit more exposure to other types of credit. And can you explain MES debt, that's mezzanine debt and, and preferred equity, just kind of talk about those a little bit for, for those that aren't, aren't familiar with what that is and the difference between that and the regular uh, debt that you were talking about? Absolutely. So they're very similar in structure. So when you take, you know, and you're buying a property, right, you got to put some level of equity, you might put some level of debt on it, right? So in the past, you could buy properties, right, and get 75, 80% leverage, meaning you were basically putting 20% equity, 25% equity, and the other form was debt. Most of the, the time that was coming in the form of one loan, right? A first lien loan where you're pledging the asset and that would basically get you there and being able to uh, uh, get to the purchase price. In today's market where leverage is harder to come by, lenders are more stringent, right? You might get 55, 65% Loan, uh, leverage on your asset. So let's just say if you only have 20%, so now you're at, you know, 75 to 85%, you have to bridge that other 15%. And you could do that different ways. That little gap in the middle there, right, can be filled with a second lien loan or what we call MES debt, right? That's your mezzanine debt. That's debt that's behind your first lien loan, right? But it also may have come, come with, you know, a higher interest rate and maybe some other protections in it. And then you also have the alternative where if you don't want it to be debt, it could also be equity. And so you could fill that with PREF equity, which comes before the investor's equity, meaning the person buying the property. So again, that would fill that gap in the middle. So you can use either or or a combination of all of them. Okay. And is that what makes fund that fund different than the previous debt fund is that you have those other positions, non-first lien positions, and maybe a little bit of pref equity in there? Correct. 
Hi, this is Zach Hapstenstall, CEO and co-founder of Rise 48 Equity. At Rise 48, we partner with investors like you to purchase large apartment buildings that we renovate to increase the value and create a profit margin for our investors through monthly passive cash flow distributions and profits on sale. We're a vertically integrated company specializing in the Phoenix, Arizona, and Dallas, Texas markets with over 200 plus full-time W-2 employees who are focused on making sure your investment is taken care of. To learn more about Rise 48 Equity's multifamily investments, schedule a call with me at rise48equity.com backslash invest. Investing in syndications can be a daunting task. Wiring a large sum of your hard-earned money to someone you talk to on the phone for 30 minutes can certainly be scary. How can you be confident in what you're doing? Steve Sue, one of the founders of LFI, just published a book called Avoiding Rookie Heirs as a Left-Field Investor, 20 Lessons Learned from 14 Years of Investing in Private Syndications. This is by far the best book I've read on syndication investing. It's an easy-to-read book chock full of great advice from Steve's experience as a passive investor. It is a must read. Whether you're a first time passive investor or a veteran, go to www.leftfieldinvestors.com books and click on the link to avoiding rookie errors as a left field investor. If you are a passive investor, you got to read this book. Since 2014, things have been pretty good in the real estate market, right? I mean, I was a, not a very good asset manager on my active stuff, but I still made a bunch of money on it. Never cash flowed, but prices just kept going up. And so I got fortunate there. Um, so how do you see the future? Do you think that DLP with the assets that you have and the ones that you're looking at, that you'll be able to maintain that? Or should investors kind of think, hey, you know, these are uncertain times. It's a little more difficult now. We might not get to that 10%. And that's okay because- circumstances, the economy has changed? Yeah. So, so great question. So I'll start with historically, right? What our performance has been like, and I'll use the housing fund as our example, because to your point, that's more directly related to someone buying their own real estate to a syndication. Just, we have more, you know, properties. We have 62 properties in that one. So go back a few years, right? Um, COVID hit in 2020, right? We bought a bunch of great assets at that time. We were able to sell in 2021 a bunch of those assets. And quite frankly, um, you know, we crushed it. Uh, the fund targets 10 to 12%. In that one year in 2021, we had a 45% return to investors. It was huge. But that we told investors that's not what you could look at all times, right? Because to your point, we were opportunistic. We bought some really good properties at you know a distressed time. Um, so now fast forward, we go into 2022. Now 2022, I'll just go to it right away and say we hit a 12.97% return. Now to me, that was a much more impressive win than hitting 45% the year before because 2022 was really challenging. And most funds, if you look at, were negative in terms of the NAVs, um, really lost money, you know, struggled throughout, you know, the cycle. That being said, um, we still, you know, exceeded our targeted returns, um, which we've done for every period. Now, sitting here today, looking into what's 2023 overall return going to look like for that fund, we've paid out the 6% preferred return monthly. So half a basis point per month that gets paid. Um, so we've paid that out already. So that's already done. And now we're waiting on two components. 
the accounting to be finished, which will give us what we call any excess distributable cash, EDC, which is a component of the return. And then the NAV, the net asset valuation, once the appraisers finish all their processes. So we get every property appraised, right? Anything that's over a year old. So it's a big daunting process, but we won't know where that ends up. So I wish I had a crystal ball to say, Jim, we're going to hit the numbers again. I really don't know. It's a tough time, right? So we didn't buy any assets or sell any assets in 2023 because of the uncertainty, right? There's just too much fluctuation in cap rates and where does that land? So for us, what we focused on was really trying to put all our efforts into increasing occupancy and NOI, the net operating income, which is really what creates value for investors. Now, what we, and that's what we can control. So we always focus on what we can control. What we can't control, right, is what is an appraiser going to put as cap rates on properties and where are they going to come out with an ending value? We don't know. So we're hopeful that, you know, we'll still have done a good enough job to uh, hit those type of returns. But if we don't, the beauty is, Jim, right, real estate is only bad if you have to sell in a down market. The beauty of our funds is they're evergreen. So investors, you know, even if we took a little bit of a dip and didn't hit that return, you know what? They're holding on to real estate that is going to eventually go up in value, right? We know the markets and real estate is cyclical and it always goes up. So if you have the stomach to continue to ride it out and continue to go through, if it didn't hit the returns, right, you still have the opportunity to get outsized returns in future years. Excellent. So, it, you know, you talked about 2023, you didn't buy or sell. In 2022, you know, you, you did buy some some assets. And so, you know, most of the assets, it seems like in multifamily that are struggling or that people are concerned about were purchased in, you know, late 2021 or anytime in 2022, and they have adjustable rate debt, right? So how are the deals that you closed in 2022? How are those doing? What kind of debt do they have? And, and are they performing as expected? Yeah. So so perform, for, start with the latter and I'll work my way backwards. <laughs> so performing <laughs> extremely well. Yeah. You know, again, not easy, right? You still have to work hard um, to, you know, do the hard work of going in there. And like we just said, you know, really making these um, properties a place where residents want to live, where they want to pay their rents, right? Um, where they want to continue to live at. Um, and we've been doing that. And we've been very successful at the property and asset management of those different properties. Um, the debt side has been a win for us because we really did really well in refinancing a lot of our older properties. And then any new properties really locking in um, long-term, um, more permanent debt financing. So I think out of our, you know, 62 loans or so, we only have like four or five that have adjustable rate on them. All the rest are fixed. I'll give you a good example. We bought a um, portfolio of uh, 10 different properties across seven different states. Um, beautiful property, uh, beautiful portfolio, all in the Southeast in the Sun Belt. We actually did it in partnership with one of our largest sponsors, um, that was a great win. We bought that one. And again, it was a $100 million acquisition price. So that was the purchase price for the portfolio. Our sponsor, the other, uh, the one that we uh, worked with, put up 35% of the equity. We put up 65% of the equity. But the way we structured the deal was our investors in the housing fund get a 65, uh, excuse me, get the 65 million back plus a 17% return 
before the other sponsor gets one dime back, right? So that's a great portfolio. But to make it really interesting, Jim, we locked in long-term financing on that portfolio at like 2.3%. So when you do that, you know, you can do really well. We don't do that on every single portfolio. I wish we could, we say we could, but we try to do it on the large majority and the vast majority of our portfolio is pretty well covered. Yeah, wow, that, that's great. So you, we talked mostly about affordable housing, multifamily, and I find it really interesting that you do multifamily, single-family rental communities, you lend, and then out of nowhere, you're doing outdoor hospi- hospitality and RV campgrounds. I know what a campground is. I'm not sure what our outdoor hospitality is, but can you just talk about that and why why you're doing that and, and where those fit in with everything else? Absolutely. So, yeah, it's you know what? It's a great underserved market and an unbelievable space. So I didn't know this until we got into the market, but there's over 11 million um, homes that own an RV in the U.S. That's a staggering number, and it's continuing to rise. Um, so these... Um, uh, what we call community campgrounds, uh, outdoor hospitality are really great places. And it's not just for RV. So we now own, I want to say over six different, um, communities. Um, and again, been a great investment for us. Some of these will go into, again, if they're on the earlier side of the buy and, you know, again, there's still some, uh, construction to be done and pads to be added and facilities to be built out. They'll go into, you know, probably our um, building communities fund. But we've done, you know, we did an acquisition just recently of two parks that we were closing at the end of last year, spilled into the beginning of this year. So we just closed them in the beginning of January. Our preferred credit fund um, owns 80% of those two properties. So again, we can have the choice of which funds they go in, really optimize it for our investors. But the beauty is these campgrounds, um, and if you want to take a look at what something like this looks like, you can type in islandoaksresorts.com. That'll give you a good um, example of what a amenitized RV camp looks like. I mean, you have water slides, you have cabanas, you have just, you know, golf carts to drive around. Um, it's incredible. So it's the type of place I'd want to take my family to just go vacation. Think of like going to Disney World or staying in a nice resort. That's what we're talking about. Now, these resorts can be anywhere. It could be Florida, anywhere else. The two that we just purchased that I mentioned are in the Ozarks. Um, so again, beautiful places with beautiful rivers, um, a lot of um, boating and a lot of different um, outdoor uh, water activities. So they all vary in types. But again, it's a space that first, there's not a lot of financing in. So going out and being able to do this is hard for a sponsor if they don't have the right way to finance the transactions and everything else. Um, so there is a little bit of a barrier to entry. We've been able to figure that out, which has helped us out tremendously. But the returns on these uh, RV parks can be tremendous. I and mean, we're talking like 30 plus type of returns easily in these different outdoor communities. Plus, we're taking it a little step further, right? It's not just the pads and it's not just for RVs. We're actually building tiny cottages um, where say like someone like myself who doesn't own an RV, doesn't necessarily want to go out and rent one to go over there, can just go to that property and rent a little tiny cottage, take my family and be just like any other resort. So wonderful opportunity for outdoor recreation. And how does that 
move the needle, right? I'm, you, you had a $100 million acquisition of, of a bunch of multifamily properties, and then it seems like even if you have 30, 40, 50% returns on RV campgrounds, are these smaller deals? Are they, are they enough to really be, you know, accretive to the returns of the whole portfolio? I mean, there must be, but I'm just curious, I guess, how big are these and how much impact do they have on the overall portfolio? Yeah, no, great question. Yeah. So, so they're not as small as people think. <laughs> so again, to give you an example, you know, um, acquisition wise, right between these two properties, I mean, these were, you know, close to 50 million, right? I mean, so you're talking about real deals, real, these are real property. I mean, but you're talking about massive, you know, 20, 30 plus acre type properties, you know, with lots of amenity. I mean, so again, um, they're not as small as folks think. Um, you know, we will continue to look for more and more opportunities because of the outsized returns. Um, but again, same principle we always use. It all comes back to the basis, right? Where you buy these uh, at. The good news is a lot of these parks and uh, communities are owned by mom and pops who don't necessarily want to continue to manage them, don't necessarily want, you know, their families to take over the family business and are looking for an exit. So you can get some really good deals. Interesting. So what is the general outlook, do you think, for, for 2024? This is kind of a change of subject here, but I'm just the, the, the economy has been so uncertain. Now we're, you know, getting messaging from the Fed that perhaps they're going to continue the pause, maybe even decrease interest rates. How does that, what, what is what is your outlook? What does DLP think is coming and, and how are you preparing for it in 2024 and beyond? From you, from your lips to God's ears. <laughs> rates need to, yeah, rate. So, so we do think um, similarly that rates will come down. It's not a, if it's when. Um, the sooner it happens, the better we're going to see improvements in all the markets because that's where the real uncertainty lies. Um, so this is going to be a big year. You know, a lot of people had the motto of stay alive till 25. I think 24 is going to be a pivotal year. It's an election year. We're going to see, you know, what happens rates. I think we'll have a better indication before mid year. Um, so our view is still, um, still bullish on workforce affordable housing. The number continues to increase in terms of the supply and demand gap. Right. So we were at five million units. Now we're at six and a half million unit gap. That gap continues to increase. So you can't buy it fast enough. You can't build it fast enough. So when you have that kind of tension in supply and demand, you know, investments 101, right? That's a great investment. Um, so we are still bullish in affordable workforce housing. You know, other markets may not fare as well. Um, but, uh, for us, we think sticking to our discipline of sticking in this space, um, not only will continue to serve our investors well from a returns perspective, but we could do a lot of good in the community doing it. That's excellent. So the last question I always ask is what's a great podcast that you listen to? Oh man, that's a, that's like a softball for us here. So we, <laughs> our, our CEO, Don Wenner has a wonderful podcast. If you haven't listened to it, I recommend it to all. It's called impact with Don. Um, you can Google that and you can get to it. Um, he uh, really does invite a lot of good guests, very similar to yourself, um, Jim, you know, getting a lot of real estate operators on there, but mix it up every now and then. Um, you know, we get uh, guys like uh, 
uh, Patrick O'Donnell to talk more about health and wellness. Um, we've also had um, recently Brett Schwartz on from Capital Gains Tax Solution, who you know talks about ways that you can you know go about having similar impact to a 1031 without a 1031 to really, you know, minimize your capital gains. Um, so there are a lot of different perspectives and different aspects to the uh, podcast, but very informative. All of the guests that I've listened to have been wonderful and, and exciting and energetic. So yeah, it's the one I listen to. So I recommend it to all. Excellent. We'll check that out. We'll put that in the show notes for sure. Now, if uh, listeners want to learn more about DLP or get in touch with you, what's the best way they can do that? Uh, the easiest. So you can go out to dlpcapital.com. If you're interested in investing, you can dial 610-488-2375. And if you want to get me personally, you can call me up anytime. You can reach me at 904-344-8080 or at rich.delgado at dlpcapital.com. Excellent. We'll put all of that in the show notes. And thank you very much for being on the show. This was a really interesting uh, episode, and and we appreciate your time. Always a pleasure, Jim. Have a beautiful and blessed week. Thank you, Rich. Cheers. Hi, folks. Ben Lapidus here, your host of the Best Ever Conference, dropping some exciting news. If you are a passive investor looking for a like-minded network and dozens of high-quality operators to personally meet, then you're going to want to hear more about this incredible new mashup. Leftfield Investors is joining this year's Best Ever Conference to create the most exclusive combination of networking and conference content available to the passive investor community anywhere. If you're already an infielder, then you get access to both events for less than the cost of one. And if you're not an infielder, then what are you doing? Sign up already. In addition to a year's membership, you get access to the LFI Day at Best Ever Conference on April 9th in Salt Lake City, followed by three phenomenal days of learning and connecting at the eighth annual Best Ever Conference, where hundreds of operators showcase their best deals and hundreds of passive investors come to learn, invest, and party with each other. We have many masterminds, game shows, intellectual debates, pitch competitions, speed networking, partner hunting, almost a hundred speakers, party after party after party, and the tail end of snow season in beautiful Salt Lake Valley. Be sure to claim an exclusively discounted price of $800 and join us in Salt Lake April 9th through 12th for the event of the year. Check us out at besteverconference.com for more info. Are you looking for a way to invest at a lower minimum and participate in more deals? Look no further than our weekly deal webinars hosted in collaboration with TribeVest. With every deal we offer, left field investors have the option to join an open tribe, allowing you to invest for as little as $10,000. No need to meet the standard $50,000 minimum. Joining an open tribe is easy. TribeVest handles all of the setup, fund collection and distribution, and even provides K-1s for tax time. All you have to do is sign up. Stay up to date with LFI by subscribing to our emails and gaining Clubhouse access to join our deal webinars and open tribes. Don't miss out. I enjoyed that conversation with Rich. And, you know, DLP, as he said, is focused on workforce housing, affordable housing. And I like that. It's nice to uh, make money while you're doing good and providing a, a much needed service to to the community. So I, I like that model. And, you know, he talked about the housing a lot of times is for those who can't afford to live where they work. And we're seeing that more and more in a lot of different uh, locations where, you know, you have just regular people working, find jobs. You know, he mentioned nurse, 
firefighter, police, policeman, and and all those other jobs that they work in one community, but they they have to live somewhere else because they can't afford to work there. So providing the opportunity for those people to actually live in the community they work, I think that's really powerful. So I like that. And he also talked about, you know, they do two-year leases, which is not that common. And their goal is to have people spend eight years. You know, that's their average. They want to average eight years uh, staying. And, and so they might end up paying more or having higher expenses for some of the extra things that they do. But if you're not turning apartments over, turning rental houses over, in the end, you end up spending less because it costs so much when you have to replace a tenant. And it was interesting to me that they don't have property managers. They call them enrichment directors. And sometimes I'll be honest, that stuff seems pretty corny, but words matter. And if you frame the job differently, then the people in the community see that job as somebody different and the actual person doing the job sees it differently. If you're a property manager, right, what are you doing? You're managing the property. You're making sure people pay. You're doing all this stuff, and that's your focus. But if they call you an enrichment director, okay, well, that's a different focus. You might still be doing all of the tasks of a property manager, but wow, you've changed your focus to making sure that you're enriching the lives of of the tenants, or at least that's the hope. So although it does seem, as I said, a little bit corny to have those words, I really think it does make an impact. So that's fantastic. And then, you know, Rich mentioned, and this, we know this, but hearing it and repeating it, real estate is only only a bad investment if you have to sell in a down market, right? If you don't have to sell and you can hold, you can usually ride out almost any cycle if you can just hold on. And the way they do debt and the way they run their business model is that they are not obligated to sell. They don't have that pressure of, hey, I got to conclude this deal in five years, so I got to do all this stuff to sell it. And and I think that opens them up for you know probably more success than than they otherwise would if they're put in a position where you have to sell at some point. So that was nice. And then RV parks, I just always think that's interesting when you have a multifamily operator, single family operator, they do all this stuff and then they're like, oh yeah, we also do RV parks. But they have an interesting business model with that. You know, I like that they're building the cottages for people that maybe don't have a motorhome so they can still go there. But these parks are becoming huge. He said two properties worth $50 million. That's not just because it's big property, but there's probably a lot of stuff on there. He mentioned all the entertainment things that you can go on and do there. So that was super interesting. Really um, enjoyed my conversation with Rich and DLP is a super interesting company. So I'll definitely be keeping my eye on them. That's all I have for this time. We'll catch you next time in the left field. Thanks for hanging out in the left field with us today. If you are interested in becoming a left fielder, you can find us on the World Wide web at www.leftfieldinvestor.com and click the subscribe button to join our community. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe to the show on your podcast player so you don't miss an episode. If you really enjoyed the show, a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to the podcast would be appreciated. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing said on the show should be considered financial advice. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by Passive Investing from Left Field and Left Field Investors. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.